extend a welcome to you this morning. Very warm Lord's Day, also Father's Day. One announcement that I failed to pass on to Dwight, and I figured I'll just do it myself here this morning. This is for the children especially. You're offering for Summer Bible School $2,256. I'm not exactly. Alice, do you remember the amount exactly? Okay. Anyway, Lord bless you for sharing. Help for the handicapped. And uh, so it was, uh, I think it was a record. And uh, Lord bless you for sharing with those that are needy. Um, also, a special thanks to Alice, Dawn, for doing the uh, teachers. Those families that uh, did the driving, those moms and dads or older siblings that stayed home and did chores, Lord bless you for sharing in that way. It's a warm day, as I mentioned. There's a little parable I'd like to read to you to start with, the weight of a tire. It's Father's Day, and having all the right answers, you know, we're supposed to have the right answers. Sometimes having all the right answers isn't the most important thing. And this actually parable speaks to a preacher, especially on a hot Sunday morning. So pay attention. I have a friend, and he hath an automobile, and he besought me that I would ride with him, and I did so gladly. And I sat with him in front, and his wife and his daughter sat in the back. And he stopped at a garage where he had left a spare tire, and they fastened it upon the rear of the car. For he said, Peradventure we have a puncture, and it is already inflated, and it is already inflated, and it hath in it eighty pounds of air. And I asked him, How much doth the empty tire weigh? And he said, It weigheth fourteen pounds when it's empty. And I asked, When it hath air in it with a pressure of eighty pounds, what doth it weigh? And he said, I know, but we will submit the question to my daughter, who goeth unto high school. If a tire weighs fourteen pounds, and have in it eighty pounds of air, how much does it weigh? And she said, It weigheth ninety-four pounds. And he spake unto his wife, and said unto her, This daughter of ours showeth less intelligence than I expected. But his wife said, Eighty pounds and fourteen pounds are four and ninety pounds, even as our daughter said. And he laughed at them, because they knew not the difference between air pressure and weight. And I spake unto them, even unto the wife and to the daughter, and I said, It is very sinful for a man to make sport of his heirs of his wife and his daughter. Moreover, the mistake is not strange. Nevertheless, the air inside the tube doth not greatly increase the weight of the tube. It, is, it still doth weigh fourteen pounds, for that within it is only air. Though it press against the tube, it beareth down, not, it beareth not down upon the scales. And they reproached themselves because they had not known. But I said unto them, Be not discomfited. Behold, many persons have made the same mistake. Yea, it would be well to remind all preachers, when they inflate their sermons, that there is very little weight in wind. This morning I'd like to stick to the meat and share with you on a hot Sunday morning a message, a profile for fathers. I was blessed as I meditated and thought about the responsibility of fathers, and I thought about Abraham, a patriarch of old who we read about in the Scripture probably almost more than any other father. If you turn to Genesis chapter 11, 
we see listed there his genealogy. And uh, it is interesting to note, and I did not calculate this out myself. I took other sources at their word for this. Abraham actually appears halfway between Adam and Christ. 2,000 years after Adam and 2,000 years before Christ. I found that rather fascinating. Right in the middle. And God, it seems at that point, God was using Abraham as a type uh, and uh, a way of drawing his people out and using him as a father. We often refer to him as a father of the faithful. And that's what I want to focus on this morning as for you and I this morning to be a profile. Abraham is not without his faults. None of us are perfect this morning. But uh, we have, we're, there are many lessons that we can learn from Abraham. And I'm not going to read through chapter 11. There's a lot of names that are difficult to uh, pronounce there perhaps. But I did, you can think about your genealogy, your ancestors. And that's what I did as I sat and uh, meditated. Those are my forefathers. Starting with me, son of Elam. All the way back through Malan, Martin, Elias, John, Jonas, Cain, and Jonas, and Philip. Philip was the first uh, note that actually immigrated to the United States. He's listed on a 1716 tax list in Mannheim, Germany, and then immigrated to uh, to uh, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and uh, died about 1749. So that's probably um, well, the Mennonite Church, 1536, I believe. If I remember correctly. So it's maybe possibly about 200 years, uh, not quite 200 years after the beginning of the Mennonite Church, they moved from Switzerland up into the Platinum of Germany and then immigrated to, because of persecution, and immigrated to uh, to America. You know, I, I don't know a lot about this. I know the least about this one. That's me. But anyway, I know the most about my father, Eel. Uh, he was my father. I, I lived with him for probably... Well, he was 93 when he died. I'm trying to think how many years he's gone. But I, I would have lived with him probably 50, over maybe 58 years, somewhere in that range, 57 years. Malin, my grandpa, lived across the yard from us for the last 8, 10 years of his life. So I, I knew him somewhat, stories he tells. But these I really don't even know. Uh, I, I, I know some things about him, just a little bit. And it's only been what has been shared, told, or stories in the past. One of them I know was, I think Martin, he was an only son. Martin was his father, and I think he had a bad leg and was, you know, didn't have a good personality. Elias was a minister at Grofdale, and that's where he's buried, Grofdale Frame Mennonite Church, and John and Jonas, and, uh, you know, so on. But that's, you know, that's really immaterial. Uh, it's, it's genealogy, and some people find genealogy fascinating. I could never... I can never, I know Lynn enjoys genealogy. Uh, I can never sit down and really put it all together. If somebody does it for me, well, I enjoy reading it and, and looking at it. But uh, uh, that was one of the things I thought about as I thought about Abraham. You know, there we have chapter 11, and it, it goes all the way back through. And, uh, you know, it's fascinating. And uh, I thought it would make it a bit more personal. If you think of your own genealogy and my own genealogy, and, uh, you know, the impact that those different genetics probably had on us. I'm probably carrying genetics from, uh, you know, them all the way through. Uh, will I, uh, will we see some similarities when we get to glory? I don't know. The first point I want to, and I want to move on to chapter, Genesis chapter 12 here. And the first point I want to leave with you this morning is that regardless of our genealogy, we each 
have a personal accountability to God. And that we see God giving a call to Abraham. Notice in Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And that's why I felt directed to share and, and think on Abraham. is because of the blessing he was uh, to in God's program. Abraham indeed was a blessing to us. You know, I, as I thought about what that call was, that call came to Abraham, and, uh, you know, we're not given a lot of details what that call was like. Uh, was it a, a, a Damascus road call like, like the Apostle Paul? God struck him down with a bright light one day and said, Abraham, you're out of here. This isn't going to work for you to continue here. We don't know. There's not details given about the call of Abraham, but the call was distinct enough and uh, powerful enough that Abraham knew he had to get moving. Uh, regardless of the manner of the call, I don't think we have an excuse for lack of obedience. And we see that in Abraham. He was leaving behind the security of a developed culture, wealth, idolatry. Um, archaeologists have, just, have since uh, discovered a very sophisticated society there in the area of the Chaldees. Uh, two structure homes, uh, a lot of evidence of idolatry. And uh, so it was a well-developed culture. And here's God coming to Abraham and says, you, you need to leave that all behind. I have a purpose. I have a plan for you. And uh, so each one of us has to answer that personal call to God. Each one of us has a personal responsibility to God, regardless of, of what lies in our past. I can't answer for Philip. I can't answer for Jonas, Jonas K., John, Elias, Martin, Malam, Elam. I am only accountable for that spot of time, life that God has given me. I need to, I need to answer for that. The call of God. It is interesting if you back up to chapter 11, and I'm not sure I understand the full story here. Why, uh, Terah, it seems like Abraham's father somewhat understood the call of Abraham, uh, from God, and he, went along with Abraham. It wasn't like he was leaving his father behind at this point yet. He, they, the whole entourage went with him. It seems like Terah was going along with them, along with Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son. And, uh, of course, uh, Sarah was going along. And uh, so I'm not sure exactly why. It is interesting to notice that as long as the whole family was with, the whole tribe of of Abraham's extended family was along with him. They actually never crossed over into Jor- over to Canaan. And uh, so they came to, in verse 31, uh, Terah took Abraham his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from the Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. Now, I don't that, that struck me with interest this morning, that... You know, they went so far, and then it seems like they stopped. And I, researching that uh, land of the habit, you know, the uh, geography of Haran, it said it's very productive, fertile ground, and uh, may have very likely appeared to, uh, appealed rather to, uh, uh, to Tira to perhaps stay there with his herds and flocks, perhaps. I don't know. But I, I guess it does, there is a, you know, there is something to notice that that's as far as Terah went. And then after Terah, 
and had died. It says he died there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. He died there. It's, it's, it's the end of his life there, in this world. And uh, it was only after that, then, it seems like Abraham was willing to cross over that river and into the land of Canaan and continue on with his walk and, and the call that God had upon his life. What if, I had to think, what if Abraham's epilogue would have read, he died in Haran? What if he had stopped there with his, the rest of his entourage family? But we know, we see the faithfulness in Abraham that he was willing to continue on. He, I don't think there was rest in his soul. I don't think there was satisfaction. He realized that God had other plans, extended plans for him beyond that. So I don't know if that's as far as Terah wanted to go and Abraham out of respect. Uh, stayed there with him. I'm not exactly sure of how much time they they were there at at Haran, why they stayed there, or how long they stayed there. But we know they stayed there till his father passed away, and then he was willing to cross over. And he was known as a Hebrew. Abraham was known as a Hebrew, who which which means I think the uh, man across the river, as he crossed over Jordan or as he crossed over Canaan into the Canaan land, he was known in the land as the man across the river, which is what Hebrew I think means. As I thought about personal responsibility, you know, how unfortunate if we do not completely follow God the whole way. Suppose we would have only went as far as halfway, as Tara did here perhaps. And our epilogue, and our Mark was talking about what's written on our tombs this morning, uh, other than our name perhaps. You know, what is it, could it be a faithful servant of God? He has followed God all the way. And uh, rather than just halfway, will my epilogue read of faithful service and obedience to God as we think of answering that call of God that we have without reserve followed God completely. And I think we, we see that in Abraham's willingness to continue to move on. And exactly what all was taking place there with the extended family, I, I don't have the answer for that. I don't know. Uh, perhaps... Uh, you know, there was pressure there from, from his father to stay and, uh, and uh, enjoy the, uh, perhaps the, uh, the fertile valleys and the productive uh, grasslands of, uh, for the herds and the flocks, perhaps. I'm not sure. The second thing, so personal responsibility to God. Each one of us has a personal responsibility to answer the call of God. The second thing is, Abraham is known as a friend of God. And I think that's a powerful testimony. Talk about having an epilogue on your tomb that he was a friend of God, that would be a powerful uh, testimony to leave to the world. And that uh, those verses are in James chapter 2. There's also, uh, Isaiah mentions it too in Isaiah chapter uh, 41, but I'm going to just read the verse here in uh, James chapter 2, verses uh, 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Abraham was called the friend of God. Again, a powerful uh, testimony. What does it take to be the friend of God? Think about that for just a minute. 
What does it take to be a friend of God? If we look at the life of Abraham, I think it takes faith. You want to be God's friend, it takes faith in Him. And if you look at the verses here in James, that faith needs to have something to back up that that expression of faith. And it means works, means obedience to Him. Uh, those are three things that I thought of as I looked at the life of Abraham. I do want to refer back to the uh, verses in Isaiah 41, because there are there's some powerful uh, truth there where it talks about Abraham again in the Old Testament being the friend of God. I'd like to break in at verse 10 of chapter 41 of Isaiah. And this is Isaiah reflecting back on the experiences of God with Abraham. Verse 10 of Isaiah 41. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Behold, behold all they that were incest against thee shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they that strive with thee shall perish. Thou shalt seek them, and shalt not find them. Even them that contended with thee, they that war against thee shall be as nothing, and as a thing of naught. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm of Jacob, ye men of Israel. I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument, having teeth. Thou shalt, thou shalt thresh the mountains, and beat them small, and shalt make the hills as chaff. Thou shalt fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. And thou shalt rejoice in the Lord, and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel. When the poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in high places, and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the, the shitta tree, and the myrtle, and the, oil, and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree, and the pine, and the box tree together, that they may see, and know, and consider, and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this, and the Holy One of Israel hath created it. Some of the things I like to just pick out of there. Notice he says, if you're the friend of God, we have reason not to fear. Fear thou not. Verse 10, verse 13, fear not. Verse 14, fear not. We are the friends of God. We have no reason to fear. Uh, are we afraid of failure? Uh, he talks about in verse 13 about holding our right hand. Uh, he talks about helping us. You know, fathers, that's what we need. We need a friend like God to help us. Uh, verse 17 talks about, I will hear thee. Uh, you know, he talks about resources being short. You know, we're, as fathers, we're to be the providers for our families. But sometimes the resources don't reach around. What do we do? Do we trust God? He says, when the poor and the needy seek water, there is none. Their tongue faileth for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. We have confidence. We can have confidence in calling upon God because He will hear us. I like verse, uh, verse 20. He says, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. It's not, Mark mentioned that. Why do we do the right things we do? Why do we follow God? Well, it's, it's, it brings peace and joy and happiness to our experience, but so that others may see and know and consider and understand. Can I not afford to cultivate a fellowship with God that we would be friends? He would be, we'd be known as, as friends. Going back to, uh, Genesis. 
personal responsibility to God, being a friend of God. And then thirdly, Abraham is known, I think, for his family. Uh, faithful, uh, father of the faithful, and you and I can lay claim to that through uh, our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians would talk about that. As we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are then Abraham's children. You know, the uh, Pharisees tried to make that connection with Jesus. They said, we be Abraham's seed. They were Abraham's genetic seed, but they were not definitely the spiritual seed. Well, looking at Abraham's family, there was Terah, his father. And again, I, I mentioned that earlier. You know, was, was that a hindrance in Abraham completely following God? I, I don't know exactly. Uh, there may have been more involved than what the Scripture tells us here. So I'll, I'll let that with... Uh, I don't want to imagine or surmise a lot of things, but uh, uh, Abraham, beside that, moved on when the opportunity is right. I, I guess I have a certain amount of respect for Abraham. If you know, was was Tira's health failing? Was he waiting there to minister to his father in his declining years? I don't know. That's what I like to think. Abraham, a man of character. I can't believe that uh, that he would have just been dwaddling away time when God was telling him, "There's more to do. There's more." I want to go further with you. I need you to go further. It seems we don't read that God re rebuked Abraham for t tearing at Haran with his family. We continue on there in chapter 12. We, we see there is a famine. And after Abraham had crossed over into Canaan. And, uh, you know, that was a, uh, a negative experience in Abraham's life. But famines are real. Famines will, you know, that... I mentioned as fathers we are the providers for our families. Fear and selfishness were enemies uh, and kept Abraham, Abraham, I believe, from trusting God. Uh, I'm not saying Abraham shouldn't have went down to Egypt, but you know when he went to Egypt, which is a type of the world, it got him into trouble. And fear and, uh, and selfishness were at the root of his actions, I believe. And uh, as fathers, when we think of fear, we think of selfishness, it'll never produce... Uh, good results in our family relationships. And, uh, you know, that speaks to me. We need to be willing to sacrifice. We need to be willing to trust God as we lead our families. Chapter 13, I realize we're passing briskly here. Chapter 13, there's friction in the family. The extended family with Lot's servants and his servants. And uh, I give Abraham high, high marks in this test. You know, it seems like Abraham should have had first choice. But he realized the friction that was taking place there between the herdsmen, his herdsmen, and Lot's herdsmen. And he said, okay, Lot, let's fix this problem. You choose what you want. And Lot did. And uh, God blessed Abraham. If you remember the story he told Abraham, he said, you know, after Lot had made his choice, he said, you look this way, you look this way, you look four different ways. And he said, I'm going to give you all this. God blessed Abraham and his... Uh, waiting on the Lord and uh, remembering to uh, practice the golden rule, perhaps. In chapter 13, verse uh, 18, it's interesting to notice what Abraham's response is to God's promise. He says, Then Abraham removed his tent and came and dwelled in the land of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. Again, I'm impressed with Abraham's devotion and commitment to God. That altar, a type of worship, a, 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 an emblem of of uh, service and commitment. He built that altar there in, in recognition of, of God's uh, direction and control of his life. 
And uh, that's what Abraham did in spite of losing the fertile valleys to his nephew Lot. And he realized that uh, Lot perhaps was going to need his help later on. We see in chapter 14 uh, when he uh, Lot was taken captive. Chapter, in chapter 14, verses 12 through 24, Abraham was in, instrumental in bringing his nephew Lot back from the uh, from captivity. And uh, like to uh, in chapter 14. Breaking into verse 12. And they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. So there he is. He's going away captive. And there came one that escaped and told Abraham the Hebrew. Notice they called him the Hebrew, the man from across the river. For he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, and the Amorite brother of Eshcol, the brother of Anner. And these were confederate with Abraham. And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought back again his brother Lot and his goods, and the women also, and the people. And uh, so there Lot, or rather there Abraham rescued his brother Lot. And if you remember the story, they they offered all the spoil to Abraham later on there in the chapter. And Abraham declined that. He said, uh, verse 22, And Abraham said unto the king of Sodom, I have lifted up. I have lift up my hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the Possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abraham rich, save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of men which went with me. Anner, Eshkel, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So again, we see Abraham's recognition of, of who God was and the role he was playing in his life. And I, I think that's a powerful a message for us to remember as fathers, to realize that it is God in control of our lives as fathers. And uh, it's not nobody else that's making us rich. And uh, we may not have a lot of rich earthly possessions, but if we have a, a faithful, if we, as, if we as a family are faithful, if we as fathers are faithful, we have wealth that is untold. Well, that's one point of friction. That was with Lot. And uh, we notice later on in chapter 16, there's some more friction develops, and that's uh, between uh, Hagar and Ishmael, uh, the, uh, when Abraham took things into his own hands, or uh, Sarah gave uh, Hagar her handmaid to Abraham for a wife, and Ishmael was born at 86 years old. When uh, Abraham was 86 years old, he was born, and uh, that created friction when when Isaac was born. And uh, I guess I looked at that. Example of, of handling friction in the family. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult perhaps. And there's three, there's four things, four lessons that I think we can learn from Abraham, the way he handled the friction. First of all, I think we can say we need to always remember to practice the golden rule. Handling friction in our families. And, you know, let's face it, we all have different personalities. Even in, even in our own families, we have different personalities. You know, like I said, some of these genetics, and then you bring marriage in yet, there's a double genetics crossover yet too. So we bring in a, a combination of genetics, personality types that, that need to be blended together. But it's always right to remember the golden rule. And I guess I, I'll never forget one thing Homer Miller 
was said to have uh, said, repeated to me, not directly, but uh, he said, never say anything unkind to anyone. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a lot of truth to that. Uh, we need to always remember to be kind and practice the golden rule. The second thing that I see in Abraham's uh, way of handling friction, uh, I see an expression of patience. And uh, I see it with, uh, with God. I see it with, uh, I think he could have used uh, patience in waiting on God. Abraham did not uh, express patience. He fabricated things in his own way. Uh, with his father, perhaps, there was patience. With Lot, you know, I suppose he could have said, all right, Lot, you, you made your bed. You can fix it, too. But Abraham was there ready to be used. He used patience in relating to Hagar and also Sarah, I believe, as well. I think the third thing is, is that of prayer. Discern God's way. Uh, and again, that's that's an important aspect. We need to discern God's way as we relate as families. What what is it God wants? Not what I want necessarily as a father. It may not be, it may not be what I want. There may be other perspectives, and that that brings me to my fourth point. I think we need to listen to both sides before making any decisions. I, even as a father, only see one perspective. And uh, if you notice the account there, when there was the friction between Ishmael and Isaac, you know Sarah actually came to Abraham and said, you know, there's a problem here. We've got to take care of it. And God told Abraham, he said, you need to listen to your wife. Sarah said, we've got to separate the two boys. And uh, Abraham came, or God came to Abraham, and it was grievous to Abraham, actually, to send Ishmael off. And, uh, but God came to Abraham and said, you know, this is what has to be done. You listen to Sarah. I'm, I'm blessing uh, Isaac because he's the son of promise, the second son, type of Christ. But he said, Ishmael is not. And he said, I will still bless him. And today we have the results of those choices living in our world today yet. That of the Arabs and the Jews. Four things. Always remember to practice the golden rule. The aspect of patience. The aspect of prayer. And then the aspect of listening. Uh, you can listen, 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 listen. Uh, too many times we, we talk without listening. At least I do. Fourth point, lesson we can learn from Abraham is the idea of legacy. What is a legacy? And I'm not sure I have this worded verbatim. I brought this was in the Anabaptist voice, quoting my brother. Legacy is our fingerprint on the future, or our way of putting the fingerprint on the future. Something to that aspect. I looked for the, my copy this morning and I couldn't find it because I want to quote it verbatim. But uh, it's we think of a legacy, we think of reaching out into the future, something that after my time is gone. These men have left me a legacy. Uh, Abraham's genealogy left him a legacy. Sometimes it may not be what we want, but it's still a way. Can, can we, can you and I as fathers impact the future? We certainly can. Uh, by our choices and our decisions in a certain, in a limited way. As I think of Abraham's Vision, uh, legacy. He, had, he was a visionary of the future. Would describe Abraham. He looked beyond the present. Now, uh, I mentioned Abraham's one altar. Actually, I think if you go through the book of Genesis, he built probably about seven altars at least that are recorded. He may have built more. I don't know. But he built a number of altars where he made commitments to God. Seven is a perfect number. I don't know. That's that's why the scripture records seven fours or not. But uh, 
as fathers, as, as we continue our walk with the Lord and we think of our, our legacy that we're leaving, I believe there needs to be, be altars built as we go along, reminding people, reminding our family, those that follow after, why we did what we did. Chapter 20, chapter 22, verse 8 of Genesis. It wouldn't be fair to talk about Abraham without talking about chapter 22. And that's where he was, God was trying and testing Abraham in the offering of Isaac. Uses the word tempt there in, in, in verse 1 of 22, but it's actually test. God was testing him. But verse 8 is particularly what I, what I wanted to pick out. And I, as I meditated, read chapter 22 sometime when you have time. When, it's, when you're sitting in the cool of your air conditioner at home, okay? I won't read all that verses, all these verses to you this morning. But verse 8 particularly stands out to me. Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they both went on, a, they both of them went together. I see a father and a son walking on, Abraham knowing what's, what he's supposed to do. And there's Isaac trailing along, tagging along. I don't, probably about, I'm assuming, we, we guess at his age, maybe 18 years old perhaps, and Abraham, by faith and trust, knowing he's going to have to give. And we know how close it came. <laughs> if you look there, uh, Abraham laid him on the altar. And Abraham, verse 10, stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abram, Abram. Now, if you notice, he said it twice. I don't know, if, has God ever spoken to... Has there ever recorded in the Scripture that God spoke a person, man's name twice? I don't know exactly what all is in that, but he called his name twice and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeking thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And then we know how God provided a lamb caught in the thicket. That is faith, that is vision, that is trust in God. We need those ingredients to be a faithful father this morning. I need those ingredients in my life. Looking back to Hebrews chapter 11, it puts it in a little clearer perspective perhaps. I'd like to just read those verses. Hebrews chapter 11 where it talks about Abraham. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he so journeyed in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundation, whose builder and maker is God. And I ask you this morning, do our children, does your family know what you're looking for? Are you looking for a build, for a, uh, for a city? which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We need to answer that question in all honesty this morning. And our family needs to know what we're looking for. I believe Abraham's family knew what he was looking for. What a journey from the Ur of the Chaldees to Huron to Canaan to Egypt to Mount Moriah. Where are you on your journey this morning? I want to close this morning by reading another little short story. It spoke to me. Train number 8,017. Train 8,017 wound its way through Selnor, Italy, without anyone giving a thought to the disaster its passengers faced in a few short hours on a rainy evening of March 2, 1944. The train did not collide with anything, nor was it derailed, burned, or damaged in any way. Yet it brought death to more people than any other real disaster in history. What happened? 
The silent killer in this train was the low grade of coal used to fire the locomotive. Shortly after 1 a.m., the heavy train with 600 passengers lumbered into the tunnel called Galleria dell'Armai. What went wrong, nobody really knows. When the two locomotives pulling the train reached mid-tunnel, the drive wheels apparently began to slip. Sand was then sprayed on the tracks, but that didn't help. The wheels lost traction, the train stopped. All else is speculation as both engineers died at the controls. Carbon monoxide snuffed out more than 500 lives. Ironically, when authorities began to clear out the bodies, they found the leading locomotive was unbraked with its controls set in reverse. The second engine was unbraked with its throttle full speed ahead. Apparently, when the train stopped, the two engineers had different ideas about what to do, and it proved fatal. They were pulling and pushing against each other. It was believed that they had both been clear in their directions, either front or back, that all the passengers, it is clear, it is believed that if they had been clear in their directions, either front or back, that all passengers would have probably survived. But there they were, straining against each other and filling the tunnel with deadly poison. Powerful forces are at work in our lives. We, too, have two engineers vying for our direction in our lives. Lusts pull us one way, our conscience the other. Intellectualism tugs at our minds. Our spirits draw us back to God. How often, is, how, often our spe- how often in our frustration have we felt that we really were opposing ourselves? Many times we come to a stop until we can sort out which direction we want to move. Real freedom to move in the right direction comes in your life when Christ is invited not to take sides but to take over as the engineer of our train. In our world of increasing tensions, it is reassuring to know that Christ can take control of us as individuals and families. He can help us bring these inner inner wars to cease fire when we relinquish control of our living to him. His terms of peace are always for our blessing.